I know I missed at least one blank, so let me start by giving that to you. Um, I totally skipped over the blank um, two B three exaltation two B three. Any other blanks that are missing? Very last. Oh, yeah, yeah. I missed that one too. Outcome. Outcome. The last verse kind of serves as a, it ends the matter. Here's what happened. They tried to kill him. He hit himself. He left. We're done. The outcome. Okay. 3A. Jesus is not old enough to have seen Abraham. Jesus is not old enough to have seen Abraham. Okay. Any other missing blanks? Oh, Kristen. 1BI. His defense. His defense. Any other missing blanks? Oh, Deb. Uh, 2B3. 2B3. Um, there's no 2B3. Oh, 2B3, exaltation. I think that's the first one I gave when we started, exaltation. So you get vindication, dedication, exaltation. Any other questions? Okay, with the uh, blanks out of the way, any any questions from this passage or really from all of John 8 and the, the this, this encounter, the Feast of Booths? Any questions from anything? Kristen. So mic- microphone over to Kristen Bollinger. Um, why doesn't he address the uh, you are a Samaritan part? I think presumably because that's just slander. Earlier in chapter 6, they know his parents. They know Joseph. They know, well, at least the Jews, to whatever degree there's overlap. I mean, is just like you can't have the same river twice, do you have the same crowd twice? In, in, the Jews, in particular, are scrupulous about maintaining family records, genealogies. So Jesus' ancestry isn't really in dispute. Um, they, there's even some indications when they say to him, we're not born of fornication, that they're aware of the report that Mary got pregnant before she got married. Um, so I, my, my assumption would be it's not a... Ch- what he does answer indicates the ones he thinks are reasonable or the ones he needs to be clear on. I, I don't think anyone is really suggesting he's a Samaritan. It, it suggests it's a slur. It's just, uh, it's just trash talking. I think we are in modern vernacular. You know, if we're not sons of Abraham, then you're a Samaritan. You know, something like that. Um, but presumably, he, not presumably, we know he didn't think it was worthy of a rebuttal. But the, the likelihood seems to be the Jews know who his parents are. Um, and they know who their parents are, and they know all the way back who their parents are. Um, that would be my assumption. But yeah, in chapter 6, in, when uh, he's, he's in Capernaum, is this not... Yeah, let me show you. John 6. Because there's no birth record in John's gospel, this is the only time his parents are referenced. Um, John 6... 
42. Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So they, they know who he is, or at the very least, if these particular people in Jerusalem don't know who he is, it's easily discernible. It, that, that's not a hard one to track down. They know he's from Galilee. Earlier in chapter 8, no prophet arises from Galilee. So they know his, they know his most recent hometown, and the people in 6 know who his father is. So my assumption would be there's not really any legitimate speculation that he may in fact be a Samaritan. It's just trash talking or slander. Um, to uh, add to that, um, with the Samaritan, the way the Jews looked at the Samaritans as being half-breeds, they were left in the land when the Assyrian captivity happened. And when they came back, they accused them of um, intermingling with the, with the Assyrians. So they were considered half-breed. And here Jesus is saying, oh, I'm doing what my father tells me to. And they're saying, well, he's obviously not referring to to uh, to Joseph, right. so he's got to be. This is, so the slander fits right. that whole idea fits. And it also could be you're a religious Samaritan because the Samaritans we know from chapter four had an alternate place of worship. So the Samaritans had a broken version, a half version, a bastardized version of Judaism. So as best as we can reconstruct it, the Samaritans kept the books of Moses and nothing else because when Moses wrote, the place was just reference to the place. So in, in, in the Pentateuch, Moses will say, in the place the Lord your God chooses. Now we know from later revelation in the Old Testament, the place is Jerusalem, the, the, the Jebusite stronghold that David makes the capital city. That's where the temple is built. Well, for the Samaritans, no, it's Mount Samaria. So they, they kept the books of Moses and got rid of everything else. And so that enabled them to have an alternate site of worship. They, they had uh, golden bulls, I believe. Um, and so they had this sort of syncretized version of worship, which is why the Jews despised them. So that's the discussion with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Is it this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus is clear. No, no, you guys got it wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. So it's possible that they're claiming he's a religious Samaritan and less going after genealogy and more of you also have a broken and mixed and contaminated form of worship. I suppose that's a possibility as well. They mean it more of a, religiously. Like your te- I'm not entirely sure whether it's just a slander, whether it's claiming that. Um, Dave Olsgaard wants to say something. Or do you have more to say, Ben? Uh, one more thing. Yeah, yeah. Just a, and then Dave's up. Yeah. A small theory that... Um, when Jesus made the claim, I am, yeah. then they picked up stones to stone him. Unless they were carrying around like heresy stones or blasphemy stones in their <laughs> pockets or they're peeling the stones out of the ephods, they probably had to leave the temple grounds to get, get stones. Which would give them a chance to, to, to do it. No. In the temple, presumably, there aren't stones large enough to stone people lying around. They would have likely, they probably had stone vendors. <laughs> Dave. I was just wondering, maybe the Samaritan thing might be a jealousy thing because they probably heard about Sychar and how well he was received there, and everything went so well and perfect, and they accepted him for who he was, and then saying, well, you must be one of them. That's entirely possible as well. Because because everyone's traveling, the potential that some, I mean, forget the potential, the likelihood that some people have come through Sychar and discovered that there's a Messianic community in Sychar who are disciples of Jesus could very realistically have gotten word so Jesus is big in Samaritan towns, huh? Well, you must be a Samaritan. That's possible. No, that's a good thought. Had not considered that. But it seems entirely feasible. 
um, that if they've heard that Jesus is 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 being celebrated in Samaritan towns, you know, then yeah, that makes sense too. That makes sense. They've already. I mean, some of their slanders have been: Is he going to go teach the Greeks? Is he going to go kill himself? Is he born of immorality? Is he a Samaritan with a demon? I mean, they they kind of jump around with their accusations as well. It, it does get have the smell of like junior high name calling, um, but that's and it's just okay, Caleb. Oh no, you're fine, dude. Scott needs his steps. Okay, so we've talked kind of about um, like breaking down the passage, what it meant. Could you delve a little more into like the practical application for how Christ's response to the Jews is something we can learn from and apply to sure. ourselves and how we respond to things? Sure. I, I think I think the most important thing to get in regards to Jesus is to see where he's flexible, to see where he's meek and mild, and to see where he does not compromise an inch. Because I think in our attempts to become all things to all people, we need to, we need to likewise know where we can flex and where we must not. And so, uh, to use Paul, Paul, Paul can eat Gentile food. He can keep Jewish food laws. That's fine. Not a big deal. Where Jesus never flexes is on his claims to authority and the authority of his word. So, if we present a Jesus who you might want to consider listening to. We're not being faithful. Jesus never flexes there. Um, Jesus in John's gospel is clear. You're not his disciple. You're not, his, you're not saved if you're not keeping his word. So as much as we want to remove unnecessary stumbling blocks, Jesus absolutely will not compromise or dull his edge on his claims to deity and the authority of his word. So we must not as well. So if you've ever met Christians, quote-unquote, we were, I think, talking about one the other day, who think somehow following Christ can be divorced from keeping his word. Jesus has nothing to do with that. Jesus blows that stuff up. As much as he'll go and, 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 and drink water from a well given to him by a Samaritan woman, he can flex there. He can, he can be humble and meek and lowly. We want to be humble and meek and lowly where he's humble and meek and lowly. And we want to be uncompromising and unflinching where he's uncompromising and unflinching. And in John's gospel, who he is, the Son of God from heaven, and the authority of his word and the necessity that those who would claim to follow him hold fast to his word is absolutely unflinching. So that'd be the first thought in our witness. And then personally, not to mistake my devotion and love for Christ apart from my attempt to hold fast to and keep his word. I've met people who insist to me. They love, they love God. They love Jesus. And their argument, their proof of that is all of their emotional experiences, um, which may or may not be the case. So I think I've talked about the, uh, the contrapositive before. I took a, it, when I was in college, I took one of the most useful classes I took was a, was a practical math class. Um, and uh, when you get an if-then statement uh, with the protasist and the potasis, if this, then this, um, one other statement is n- absolutely necessary. So if you think of it symbolically, if A, then B. If condition A is met, then condition B will follow, um, which is all over the place. Jesus speaks this way all over the place. So if, here's the example I've, I've used. If it's raining, the grass is wet. If it's raining, the grass is wet. So if A, then B. What other, there's only one other necessarily true statement you can derive from that. And so if you think of it A, B, it's not if B, then A. It, 
if it's raining, the grass is wet, does not necessitate if the grass is wet, it's raining. The sprinklers could be on. It could have rained an hour ago. It might be raining, but the grass being wet is no sure sign that it is raining, right? Okay, what about if, the, if it's not raining, the grass is dry? What about not A to not B? Again, it could have stopped raining, the grass is still wet. The only necessary um, true statement from an if A then B is reverse the order and reverse the polarity. If not B, then not A. So if A then B necessitates, logically, if it's true that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, it's also true if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me, is absolutely necessarily true. So using that to factor in our devotion to the Lord um, as, as a measuring stick, because I've really met a number of people who clearly don't believe that. They, they will, I mean, as our consciousness bothers, we want to tell us, no, I really do love the Lord. No, I, Jesus is, again, really plain on that. Um, so, so that would be some practical application. I'm sure there's more, but that's what immediately comes to my mind. Um, yeah. Okay. Anything else? Anybody else on this passage? Has anyone met people that say Jesus didn't think he was God? I, I know I've talked about that a fair bit, but is this anything anyone's encountered before? Or am I just, um, oh, Eric, Eric, hold on, Eric. Um, yes, I've met people like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just confirming that that's a thing. I was actually doing some research on that this morning to try to find some quotes. And basically, John's gospel so clearly teaches the, the deity of Christ that the people who say Jesus never claimed he was God also have to discount John. I mean, that, that's kind of telling. They basically, no, the argument is guys like Barterman will say that uh, John was written in the 90s and it doesn't represent the raw Jesus. The Mark probably is, you know, they're buying into like the Q hypothesis. And so they're going to assume Mark's really uh, the closest to Jesus, and Mark's Jesus doesn't claim to be God. So by the 90s, the Jesus followers have already turned their hero into a god, and it's showing up in John. But there's a sense, but they're, what they're acknowledging is, yeah, I can't get around John. So that tells you something right there. When the enemies of the deity of Christ freely admit, I can't get past John, so we've got to discredit John, that's telling something. Right, but then the next thing that they say these people are generally well this was just a vote so well that book doesn't even you know you get to pick and choose what books are in just like they did yeah so yeah yeah it's always one more thing and then you go well that doesn't really work and well i mean then they switch subjects and right 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 well we want us to wonder why jesus was crucified why if, if just about just about everybody recognizes goodness in Jesus' plain, horizontal, loving-your-neighbor ethical teaching. Now, there are aspects of it that would offend different people. Jesus um, turning the other cheek would offend people in an honor culture. Our culture loves Jesus' teaching with turning the other cheek, but in honor cultures, that'd be a problem. Jesus', Jesus single-focus ethics on marriage would offend some people today um, about divorce and remarriage, things like that. But for the most part, most people recognize there's a lot of good in Jesus' teaching. It's hard to like want to nail someone to a tree because what he's teaching, and somebody who healed and did good and um, and and cast out demons and fed again. It's hard to see why they'd want to kill him, and so part of the problem is why, why then did they nail him to a tree? And the gospels are really clear: blasphemy, 
blasphemy. You make yourself out to be God, blasphemy. Now, the other Gospels do have him making claims. Um, they're not as absolutely unveiled as jo- John's, I think, are the absolute clearest claims. But there are other claims. When he claims to be the Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. He's citing Daniel. And that's when the high priest tears his robes and basically the penny drops. All this time you've been calling yourself the Son of Man, you meant that? And then they say, okay, what further testimony do we need? He's guilty of blasphemy. And again, you're claiming to be the one who comes to the Ancient of Days and to whom is given a throne in the kingdom and dominion. So, so it's in all the Gospels. It's not that it isn't in the Gospels. But if you haven't read Daniel 7, if you're just, an, if you're just looking for a proof text to try to say, Jesus never said this, it won't be readily apparent jumping off the text in Matthew that Jesus is claiming to be God. Or even in Luke, he forgives sins. Who else can, again, the Jews get it. Who else can forgive sin but God? You just have to do more than like read a bumper sticker to get that. It's, it's not, what you won't find is type in your little program, I am God, end quote. You know, you won't find that. You're right. Jesus doesn't say those words, but he says he's God. He clearly claims to be God. And, and that's the claim that the earliest church could have avoided all persecution for. The earliest, I meant to say this morning when I didn't. So the Old Testament, you've got three names for the Lord God in the Old Testament. You've got uh, Elohim, which gets translated in most English Bibles as God. You get Lord, lowercase caps, uh, Adonai. And then you've got Yahweh, Lord, all caps. And the New Testament word used, I think, exclusively to translate Lord, all caps, Yahweh, is the Greek kurios. So the earliest Christian confession is Jesus is Lord, right? Romans 10. For, um, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed Jesus, for, confessed Jesus as Lord. Confessing Jesus as Lord is confessing him as Yahweh. And what, what offended the Romans was not, we have this great prophet and moral teacher. The, the Roman claim was that Caesar was Lord. The, the Roman Caesar, when he died, became a god. Caligula tried to become one before he died, but eventually it moves backwards. But the claim was they became, in their death, deified. Um, and so the, the, the Christians could have avoided a lot of suffering and persecution if they could have just backed off the claim that Jesus is Lord. Rome understood what they were saying. And so again, the question is why? Why would you face death and persecution and torture for you and your family when all you have to say is, no, he's just a great teacher. Rome would have no problem. Rome would have no problem. He's a prophet because Rome had a pantheon of gods. Rome was all about just, okay, you Phoenicians will bring in your Bacchus. Sure, that sounds cool. And they'll bring this thing in. They'd have no problem bringing in Jesus even as another god. It's the claim that Jesus is the only God. That was what, what Rome killed Christians. So again, for, for someone who wants to make that case, that was pretty dumb of the Christians to be so misunderstood that they got killed everywhere. When all they had to say is, no, no, we just have a great ethical teacher and model and example and prophet. Rome would have zero problem with such a claim. Um, so, yeah. Okay, other thoughts, questions on any of this? Did you, you, oh no, that's a a sign-up sheet, got it. Interestingly, um, I think it's actually, if you were to ask me which member of the Trinity is speaking from the burning bush, I believe it's pre-incarnate Christ. It's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is, angel just means messenger. Um, The messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, is, uh, 
speaks for God and speaks as God. And once Christ becomes man, the angel of the Lord stops showing up. So it's a deduction that we make, but I think it's a pretty safe deduction that the angel of the Lord is pre-incarnate Christ. And if that deduction is true, then it's actually Jesus speaking from the burning bush. Or it's pre Jesus technically is the name the Son of God took in his incarnation. So technically, it's not Jesus. Technically, it's the Son of God or the angel of the Lord. But I think you understand what I mean when I say it's Jesus speaking from the bush. Um, yeah. Zeb. Just a small note on the angel of the Lord. Um, the angel of the Lord also receives sacrifices and worship, yes. which is um, yes. something that we see angels specifically in heaven <laughs> not allowing. No, in Revelation, when John starts worshiping the angel, he's like, stop it, stop that. No, um, Samson's parents um, worship and offer sacrifice and say, we've seen God. No, I mean, we could do a whole study where we track through, just sometime grab... You want to grab the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord through the Old Testament. It, it's pretty clear the angel of the Lord's divine. Um, that that we could do sometime if you guys want. But yes, yes, you two, Caleb and Maggie. Which one are you, Caleb or Maggie, or both? Maggie. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we we're kind of like debating back and forth over here, trying to figure out the answer to this. So I don't know whether or not. Oh, shoot. I don't know whether or not Jesus was speaking Hebrew when he was talking to them, but either way, does is the word in Hebrew for I am identical to the, their word for God? No. No. It's, it would be ego eimi, um, which the, so the Greek's verb, Greek, that'd be Greek. The Greek, with the Greek, the text written, whether Jesus, so most, what's funny is most, most people argue Jesus didn't speak Greek. The, this, in fact, answering your question, Emory, the second video that I posted is internal evidence from the Gospels that Jesus, it, Peter Williams is, I posted on YouTube if anyone wants to check this out, internal evidence that Jesus spoke Greek. Whether or not he spoke Greek exclusively, not arguing, but that, that he could. There's some alliteration in some of his, like the Beatitudes alliterate in Greek in a way that they don't in any other language, like Syriac, Coptic, or Aramaic, for instance. Um... So, if Jesus is speaking Hebrew, if what we're getting here, and it would make sense, he's in Jerusalem, he could easily be speaking Hebrew, then that would be undeniably clear. Already in John 8, I argued that when he says, unless you believe that I am, and your English Bible says, I am he, it's again, ego me. it's exactly what it is here. So, in, in Greek, which is what our, John's gospel is written in, ego me. The, the ego, I, is redundant or it's emphatic because a me carries with it its pronoun. So I'll give you an example. The English, it works with imperative verbs. So if you know that the minimum of a sentence is a subject and a verb, if I say be quiet, what's the subject of the verb? Implied you. An imperative verb in English implies its own pronoun, right? No other verbs in English do that, but we do that there. Well, Greek verbs all imply their pronouns. So when you add the pronoun anyway, it's you be quiet. I myself am, right? Something like that. So in John 8, when he says, unless you believe that I am, they put he in, which again could legitimately be implied. It's ambiguous. The grammar could mean that. I argued, I do think he's claiming to be God there. Here, before Abraham was, I am, where there's no possible I am he, and then they pick up stones, it's clear which of the... So the Greek 
would have a couple ways you could read the grammar. But given, the, given what Jesus is saying and in the context he's saying it and given their response, the ambiguity gets narrowed down. He's claiming, I am. Um, whereas in other contexts, it's not 100% clear. He says, I am the door. I mean, but there you've got an object, I am the door. Now, if he's speaking Hebrew, that could account for why they, they fall, they do what they do. When they come to arrest him in John's gospel, he says, I am, I think, three times, and they fall down on their faces. Again, very likely he's speaking Hebrew, actually speaks the divine name. It's either that or these people all spontaneously decided to have a worship session three times while they're coming to arrest somebody. Um, no, that, it, no, it's a remarkable passage, but there's some power in what he's saying. Clearly, he says something, and everyone falls on their faces, and what he says is, ego e me. So uh, it seems likely he's speaking the divine name, and the Jews, in their, I mean, the, the irony is these Jews who don't know God reverence God's name. And like, so many, like so many people in error, they, they major on a minor. So quite, quite right, don't take God's name lightly. The, the concept of blasphemy is taking God's name lightly. So, so the, uh, is it the second commandment? Is it, no, third, fourth. Which, which one's blasphemy? I'm, this is bad. Um, Zeb? Blasphemy. Kicking the Lord's name in vain. Third? Third, yeah, okay. Sorry, my brain's not what it once was. Um, it's, it's not fundamentally using God's name as a curse word. I think that would be a way of you taking it in vain. It's just taking it lightly, not giving it due weight. Um, I think that's the problem with when my kids, you know, someone says, you know, uh, damn it. Well, you can speak of damning something in a, in a proper way. The, the reason why saying damn it, I think, is a bad thing to do is because you're taking a concept that has weight and gravity to it, and you're using it because the stoplight turned red. Like, it's damnation. The, it, it's clearly you're using it lightly, right? Um, and so using God's name lightly, we got a question if you want to get ready. Lightly is the fundamental issue. So the Jews not wanting to ever use it lightly, decided, you know, probably better if we just never said it. So even today, um, Serena spent a semester in Israel. The Messianic Jews, it's uh, halu, 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 hallelujah, hodu, l'shem, praise to the name. Um, because maybe, maybe even this isn't weighty enough. This isn't weighty enough to use God's name, so it's probably just not pull it out. It, they have, in Jewish schools, synagogue schools, they have jars for pens that have been used to write the name. Because once a pen has been given the honor of writing the divine name, how can you ever use it for anything lesser? Any scrap of paper upon which the divine names are written, you can't throw it away and mingle it with the common trash. You've got to save that too. Well, there is, of course, something... I wouldn't mind it if American Christians took a step or two in that direction. Now, granted, they're like eight miles in that direction. But the irony being they're, they're so fastidious about things like that, and yet they nail the Son of God to a tree. But yeah, um, yeah. you are Maggie's mother, and your name I have forgotten because I'm a terrible person. Patty. Patty. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, unless I'm completely misunderstanding you, um, Maggie wasn't saying that he was taking his own name. I, I think the point was that he was saying that he was God when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Right. Maggie was saying, is it possible that he was speaking Hebrew and actually said the Tetragrammaton? That, like in Hebrew said, I am God, essentially. Yeah. Well, the, 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 what we call Yahweh, the three letters, and we don't, because the Hebrew text was written without vowels. It was written for people who know how to use it, um, use the vowels. The, the uh, Masoretes, um, 
created a vowel pointing system in like the 8th or 9th century AD because Hebrew was dying as a spoken language. And so it represents their best guess, which is a pretty informed guess. But the original text had no vowel pointings. So Yahweh, we take the vowels from Adonai, we put them on top of the Tetragrammaton, and we come up with Yahweh or something like that. It's a pretty good guess, but it is a guess at that. But the likelihood that Jesus, it is entirely possible. I, what, I, what I answered your question is, is it possible Jesus actually spoke the Hebrew divine name? Yeah, it's entirely possible. Entirely. If he said it in Hebrew, there would be zero ambiguity. Before Abraham was Yahweh. Um, in Greek, I think it's still unambiguous because of the context and what they do. If it was Hebrew, there would be... At, you're taking... It would be like saying... It, so Yahweh is God's personal name. So someone might have a... If you want to think of God as a title, then Yahweh is the personal name. And so Jesus is doing more than saying, I'm God. He's saying, I am Yahweh. Um, before Abraham was, I am. Whether he did that in Greek or Hebrew, I know not. The text we have is in Greek. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Zeb. Oh, nope. Sorry. So Jesus says, like, all over the Gospels, like, you don't know me. You're, you're not worshiping God. Like, you don't, you don't recognize me. So, like, I, I think that kind of begs the question, what are they worshiping instead? Is, like, is there faithful Hebrewness without recognizing God incarnate? Mm. Uh, is, that, is that idolatry, or what is that? Sure. Well, I think we get some clues, even from John 8. What parts, do it, do it by reverse engineering, what parts of Jesus' teaching offend them? They really don't like your slaves to sin. Their response to your slaves to sin is we're children of Abraham. Put that together. Throw in John one thirteen to those who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become sons of God, children born not of blood or of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of God. And what you get seems to be something like because of our genetic descent from Abraham, the receiver of the promises, and because of some form of observance, I think they would recognize there needs to be, they're at the temple after all. But combine those two things together. We're genetic sons of Abraham, and we've got some observance of the law. We are good. We are in an entirely different category than these accursed sinners who do not know the law. That's what the uh, Pharisees, uh, no, that's, yeah, that's what Pharisees said of the peoples. And so there's a self, self-righteousness, self-confidence. They, they, they mistook what they needed. They, I don't think any of them would say they're sinless, but they certainly don't view themselves as enslaved to sin and as needing that type of a remedy. When Jesus, look, I'm talking about slavery to sin, their response is, we're we're children of Abraham. So clearly they thought that was an answer to the charge. So self-righteousness and self-confidence seems to be the problem. They mixed that with their religion, which was the true religion, and it the messenger who comes to expose their self-righteousness, they hate. Therefore, they hate God. I, th- I think that's the math of the logic. But, yeah. Anyone want to add to that? Or Zeb, Zeb does. Mm-hmm. 
this is more going back um, to the question as to what Jesus specifically said when he said, um, I am before Abraham was, I am in saying ego. I me, he's using the Greek, as you said, the Greek for, uh, for I am, that is also the specific Greek terminology as I have. I don't, obviously I don't speak Greek, but, um, from what I understand from all the resources I've seen, that's the same terminology that was used in the Septuagint, the Greek, uh, basically the, the Greek translation of the old Testament, which was the scripture of the early church. That was what the entire early church used. So it was as clear to anyone reading, uh, John in the first and second centuries that Jesus was using the divine name as it is to us reading before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. There was no ambiguity there. So the Greek translations of the old Testament, we call the Septuagint. Um, that's how they would have translated Yahweh would be a go me. Well, it's just like the, the, the other way they, they would translate it would be Koryos when they, when it's used later. And so Jesus is Lord is clearly taking that and pushing onto that then. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Other thoughts, questions. We have 15 minutes here. Nobody. Okay. We got one. Carol. No, 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 no. The, the five people, dude. I, and the periodically, there's five people come up and thank me for standing up for them. So, um. Um, I, I came in a lace. The deep theological question. Uh, point two B. <laughs> <laughs> I deserve this. Lowercase Roman numeral two and three. I, I missed Exaltation. that. Exaltation. Exaltation. Two B three. Yeah. So, all right, I got irony, ignorance, and then what's underneath ignorance? Dedication? Yes. Two. Two B2 is dedication. Two B3, exaltation. Okay, got it. Dedication, exaltation. I chose to go with abstinence instead of alliteration on that one. Then I chose not to say it in the message, which was super helpful. Uh, (laughs) So, okay. It does. Like I'm, I want. I want to have a lot of questions in ABF. I know. I'll skip over my blanks. Um, there you go. Okay. Any anything else on this? The deity of Christ. Um, I, I want to go further further with with something here. Part of I mentioned this in the message. Part of the reason I think Jesus doesn't just "Hi, I'm God," is because there's a tremendous need for nuance in what that claim means. There's two. There's so there's two errors. We want to avoid in affirming the deity of Christ. One error is polytheism. There are not many gods, um, and so what's 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 the if there's any if there's anything the Jews know Deuteronomy six the Shema what is it? Hear O Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one right. So that and it does really seem like um, going to Babylon cures them of. I wouldn't say the Jews are polytheists. That the term um, I heard is henotheism, the belief in one main big God, but the belief in lesser gods as well. That's probably the best description of the Jews prior to the Babylonian captivity. It's less that when they went to serve the Asherah poles and the Baals, that they no longer thought Yahweh was real. It seems as though from their attempt to syncretize the yes 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 Yahweh made the heavens and the earth yes 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 Yahweh spoke the world in day one day two but Baal can make it rain Baal has some power and I, I'm not sure I want to just trust Yahweh to make it rain so I'm going to go um, 
offer one of my sons or daughters to the fire to get to ensure I get some rain. So he, that would be henotheism, um, the notion that there's one big central main god, but there are lesser gods underneath it. Something like that seems to be what the Jews were doing. Uh, it's the only way I can make sense of the Old Testament where they're still engaged in the worship system, and yet they're going and they're, they're worshiping at the Asherah poles and they're worshiping at the Baals and things like that. Coming out of Babylon, one of the things they got from that seems to be, that's bad, <laughs> that there's no hint of that outside of overt um, worship like that coming out of Babylon. Um, and so they really seem to buckle down on the, what's, what's called the Shema, which is the Hebrew for here, Deuteronomy 6. Um, here are the Lord, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So they're, they're okay, we've got to be monotheists. We have got to be monotheists. We don't want to go back to Babylon. We've got to be monotheists. So when you've got a people like that, Jesus can't just drop, I'm God, without the rest of chapter 5 in John 5 to explain what he means. Lest you think there's multiple. So all of Jesus' language about, I and the Father are one. I do nothing of my own, but only what I see my Father doing. Those are the statements to making it clear he is working in perfect concert and harmony with his Father. There's no opposition. There's a unity of will and purpose, right? The other error we've got to avoid which is, I think it's less of a problem in Jesus' day, but more of a problem in ours, is what's called modalism. The belief, the denial that there are multiple persons in the one God. And modalism, which is alive and well, most probably notably in some versions of Pentecostalism, not all Pentecostalism, but I think the most notable versions modern day of modalism would be in Pentecostal oneness theology. It's the view that God, just like I'm a father and I'm a son and I'm a citizen and I'm a pastor, God at times is God the Father. And at times he's God the Son. And at times he's God the Holy Spirit. And what you lose is any relationship between those people. It's God functioning in various modes. And what you get is the positive oneness side of things. And what you lose is a father who loves a son. All of, all of the intra-Trinitarian love that Jesus in John 5, probably most explicitly, and then John 17. Tur- turn to John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, John 17 is all about this intra-Trinitarian love. And if God, if you, if you go that way to modalism, where there's, you still emphasize the oneness of God, that you deny the multiple persons in the one God, you end up with destroying really the foundation of love. So John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Notice the reciprocal nature. Jesus isn't, when I said this earlier, Jesus isn't directly seeking his own glory. There is a sense in which his mission is on a mission for glory because by glorifying his father, it will in turn, the father will glorify the son. And Jesus is interested in that as it fits into that program. What he's immediately got in front of his eyes is the glorification of his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And if God's just wearing different hats, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Is God schizophrenic? 
In fact, um, in a, uh, I know I keep quoting Carson, and the reason I quote Carson is to be clear, is I don't want to claim in some of these ideas of my own. Um, Carson pointed out to me in one of his messages that uh, the Trinitarian, the Trinity, the, the Christian understanding of the Trinity is the only view of God that gives any grounding to the notion of God being loving. Um, it's not it's not a reason to believe it, but having believed it, it's one of the entailments. It's one of the reasons why uh, Judaism and Islam has a harder time fleshing out the love of God or the love of Allah. The notion of God as a lawgiver, God as a judge, God is holy. They get all that. Because if you ask a Muslim, you ask a, a, an Orthodox Jewish person, in what sense is God loving outside of creation or what we would call contingency? I think they'd have to say God can be loving when there's an object to love. When there's something in front of him that he could love, he could be loving. But that's the definition of contingency. Love, then, at best, in an in a Orthodox Jewish understanding or in a Muslim understanding, at best, God's loving, the love of God is a contingent attribute. In the right circumstances, were they to present themselves, he would be loving. But, of course, God is eternal. Who was God loving before he created the heavens and the earth? And it's really hard to think of an answer an Orthodox Muslim or Orthodox Jew could give. And one of the realities we see in this prayer is before creation, the Father is loving the Son, the Son is loving the Father. They are face-to-face together. So when God creates the world and he reveals himself as a loving, talking, revealing God, he's not doing anything fundamentally new that he hasn't been doing already. Love is not a contingent attribute for the God of the Bible because the Father has been loving the Son, the Son has been loving the Father for all of eternity. So it's, it's, it is significant at that level, but if you press all the way to modalism, you lose the personhood of, of the members of the Trinity. So we, we worship a God who is one, threeness of persons, oneness of unity. He is one God um, who exists, and you got to use this term now, three simultaneous persons, else you could still slip modalism in um, and have God be a schizophrenic or God switching persons, you know, personalities. But th- that's th- that type of qualification is what you've got to give, which makes just raw statements of I'm God potentially very confusing. So in John's Gospel, the first time he says it plainly, you get half a chapter of him explaining what that means. Um, and even here, as he's being pressed to speak more and more clearly, they stop discussion, discussing and want to pick up stones, or as Ben said, go find some stones, because quite rightly, yeah, there wouldn't be lots of stones lying around the uh, temple. Excellent point. Okay, we've got time for one more question. We've got anything else before we break? Oh. Is this one? Oh. Yeah. I was just wondering if there's a record of the hymns that have been sung over time. There was, there were two hymns about a month and a half ago that I really liked, <laughs> and I yeah, don't I, know the names. <laughs> if there's any, if you can remember the Sunday, I have a list of every song we've sung for every Sunday for the last fifteen years on my computer. Okay. All I remember is you see, you see these. One almost, of them was a Scottish. 
historic um, Scottish hymn or something. See this sheet here? These are orders. These, this is, uh, we print these up for the worship team for the ushers. They know when we're doing the offering. Print them up for the, uh, the person doing slides and the sound guy back there. So every Sunday I type up one of these, and I've got them going back for the last 18 years. So I'd need to know what, I'd need to know even if you knew a week within a week or two, I'd need to know. I could pull those up. But if you say everything this fall, that would take a bit longer. So if you could narrow it down. Um, no, I'm happy to. Is it I, are you thinking of, I asked the Lord. I asked the Lord. It's, well, it's a Scottish tune. It's Oh, Wally, Wally. It's the melody we, we, I think we most likely sang it to. Anyway, we can talk after. Be happy to. Yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's in John Newton text put to a Scottish melody. Um, so it's an old, it's an old hymn. Anyway, okay, okay, guys. Um, any other last-minute questions? Because we've got now like two minutes. I might just let you out early if there's nothing else. So. I have a really quick one. Oh, by all means, Jeremy, bring us home. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have some missing blanks. No. Oh. Um, <laughs> you're talking about how it. For the last couple of weeks, we've talked a little bit about how it's not um, logically consistent to say Jesus is a good teacher, yeah. um, because if you know what he says and about himself and all that stuff, then he's either God or he's a kind of lunatic. Right. Um, and so you see periodically, uh, uh, like Jewish people specifically, when asked who Jesus is, they would say someone something like a, a um, someone who was trying to lead a the people astray, or or a, a resurrection, or not a resurrection, uh, rebellion, yeah, whatever. Uh, they, the one thing they don't believe he is is the Messiah. Right. So what are they looking for? What what does he? Is it just a political aspect of it that they're that they thought he was going to be that they're missing? Of course, it's it's hard to to speak monolithically but sure. i'd say mon- i'd say if you had to p- pick one thing yeah they're looking for the geopolitical savior uh, they're looking for the one who will what did peter say to jesus in acts one will you now restore the kingdom to israel they're looking for the messiah who will restore the kingdom to israel who will uh, cause them to be exalted among the nations they're looking for a time when the nations will come to the temple of god in jerusalem to worship take the hold of the hem of a jew and say you take us they're looking for someone who's going to come and vindicate and honor them um, which we believe ultimately will happen, just not as the next step. You know, Christ comes in his first coming humble. He comes as a conquering king the second time. So what we are looking for in the second coming, they're looking for in the first coming, something like that. For, for total shorthand, that's what they're looking for. As far as much as I can speak for an entire group of people with one thing, that would be what I'd say. Um, which is nice for those who are around then, those Jewish people that are around then who say, oh, yeah, this is Messiah. But right. generations and generations of Jews who were reject- rejecting Jesus as the first coming right. are lost. Well, and you can imagine with all, I mean, the Jews have just been been persecuted everywhere they go, always and everywhere. And so having this belief that someday will come vindication, someday the Messiah will come and, and will restore yeah, that's got to be very appealing, right? Uh, especially when you just got generations after generation after generation of being various levels of mistreatment to outright, you know, attempted genocide. So um, I, I imagine that only strengthens that resolve and commitment 
um, it would seem to me. So, okay, we're at time, ladies and gentlemen. I'll stick around for a few minutes, but God bless. Oh, was there a question? Oh, okay, Jackie. Okay, don't stop the tape yet. Go, Jackie. I was just thinking, so during the tribulation. Okay, top the tape. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, no, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are all of them going to have their eyes opened? So, in, in Rome, the short answer I'll give is this. In Romans 11, it talks about all Israel being saved. Zechariah 12, real fast, we'll go there. There's no text. I don't know if Zechariah 12 refers to every last Jew or if Zechariah 12 speaks to such an overwhelming majority that you can say all. But whatever Zechariah 12.10 is talking about is what will happen. And Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning from Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. In the plain of Megiddo, the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Now, whether that's every single last one, what's clear is through every tribe, through every division, they're turning. Whether or not there's a remnant of unbelievers left, I don't know. It entirely could be every single last one, or it's so absolutely many of them that you can say the entire people did. It's one of those two. Um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't get dogmatic. It's certainly accurate to say they will turn. Um, yeah, anyway, that's a hopeful and positive note. We'll break and end on that. God bless.